So the theme is crisis, some kind of catastrophe. Uh, Alaric, who is king of the Goths, uh, sacks Rome, uh, August 24th through August 26th. It was something like a 9-11 attack on New York and DC in the sense it was pretty horrible, but it was mostly symbolic. Uh, by the way, it wasn't the first sack of Rome, and it won't be the last, and it's not even Alaric's first. It's his most successful and uh, uh, notorious. Interestingly, Rome wasn't even the capital, because after Constantine's conversion in 310, uh, within 10 years, he has moved the capital of the empire to Constantinople. So old Rome or the first Rome is, it's still important culturally, but uh, it, it is not the capital of the empire anymore. And it's not even the capital of what is in the empire in Italy. Uh, that had moved to the north of Italy by the time of Augustine's lifetime. So up around Milan is where all of the important politicians and military officers were because that's where the military action was, right, in the north of Italy. But Rome was still a kind of pagan city and Augustine describes it somewhat uh, carefully in those middle books of the Confessions when he leaves North Africa and, and goes to Italy. They still had games and uh, Vestal Virgins were still around. And the old senatorial families, plenty of them had still survived by 410. Both Christians and pagans threw up their hands in despair and said, this is the greatest catastrophe ever. St. Jerome said, the entire world is perishing in one city. Uh, and that we should, we should grieve in a way for the end of the world, or at least the civilized world, according to St. Jerome. Uh, Augustine would have none of this. You'll see in the very first pages of the City of God, this is not his take on the sack. Um, in fact, the sack only pertains to book one of the, uh, of the City of God. Uh, uh, the subsequent 21 books have nothing to do with it immediately. So by the time Augustine was born, 354 AD, virtually anyone who could have an opinion believed that Roman exceptionalism was due entirely to its empire. It was not officially designated an empire until 27 AD. So, uh, excuse me, 27 BC. But since the end of the Punic Wars, it was a de facto empire. So when Augustine was born in 354, he had lived in a de facto empire, global empire, that was almost 500 years old. People knew more about the status of Rome in its imperial life uh, than they did about its Republican life or even its pre-Republican life. So a couple of things, a few little facts about the empire. It, uh, it had more than 90 million people. The city of Rome had about 850,000 people which was down 300,000 from its zenith, would have, which would have been 
during the time of Caesar Augustus. Its zenith would have been about 1.2 mil. But the empire consisted of about 250 municipalities, cities, towns, and very little towns, like the one that Augustine grew up in in North Africa. Uh, It's estimated that these municipalities contain 65,000 curiales, which means administrators, uh, people who are like our mayors, more or less like mayors and aldermen and things like this. Uh, Augustine's father held a minor post in, um, in, in Augustine's hometown of Thagast. The, it had a smaller but very impressive class of professional governors, uh, dip- diplomats, bureaucrats, who could speak three or four languages, certainly Latin and Greek and, and other languages that were necessary for their posts. There was a civilian bureaucracy in the major cities that contained uh, all of the typical kind of slots and climbing order and honors. And so Augustine himself, uh, at the time of his conversion, held the chair of municipal rhetoric in Milan. His job every week was to write a speech proclaiming the glory of Rome, basically. It it was speeches for parades and anniversaries, et cetera, et cetera. He he ended up calling it the chair of lies. And when he uh, went to his, uh, when he went to his baptism, he says in the confessions, baptism emancipated him from rhetoric. And, you know, book one begins on this very note, because there are two glories. It's the one proclaimed by Virgil, who is the mouthpiece for Jupiter, and there's the glory of the Lord God, speaking through his saints and through scripture. There's two glories. Um, So, oh, by the way, the military was quite impressive. Uh, about 700,000. The Roman military in Zenith was as big as our U.S. Army and Marine Corps today. It was highly mobile, very well trained, and it went from England to Azerbaijan. North Africa to close to Arabia. It, It was a quite capable military all the way to the end. The problem at the end is that the tax base in the Western part of the empire had been declining and they simply couldn't afford the factories for the, for the weapons and for the leather making and so on and so forth. And it steadily declined. By the time of 410 in the West, uh, the military force had declined. The, the emperor in Constantinople didn't want to spend any more money Uh, supporting it. So, almost everyone believes in manifest destiny of Rome. Long before President Polk. Although Polk got the American empire much more cheaply and quickly than Rome got hers. But it it was a manifest destiny position. It It was taught in the schools. And it wasn't just pagans who believed in the manifest destiny of Rome. It was Christians. Probably the most 
audacious treatise on the manifest destiny of Rome is Eusebius of Caesarea's triennial oration in praise of Constantine. Right? He lets out all the stops. Uh, Augustine, for his part, was completely against this kind of rhetoric, uh, not only because of the kind of rhetoric that it was, but because he thought it was contrary to Christian revelation. And the, one of the reasons he has to trudge through those first 10 books of the Confessions uh, so carefully on the basis of the writings of the Roman authors themselves was to show that the historians, as he calls them, uh, never believed in the manifest destiny. And they may have written some treatises for it, uh, for money or something like that, but uh, their books show well enough it was not a manifest destiny. When, about two months after the sack, refugees start showing up in North Africa, and of course, Augustine C. Um, was uh, right on the ocean, Hippo Regius. It was the Roman naval port. Uh, and they're showing up in, in the thousands. And these would have been Romans well off enough who survived the sack, who had the money to, uh, to get out of town. And the best place to go to get out of town was North Africa, not Sicily, but North Africa, because North Africa was rich. It, it was rich in land, rich in agriculture. It had beautiful cities. Uh, and they basically went down there to buy their own condos. And in came not only uh, rich pagans, but rich Christians. And they're all bemoaning the event and they're grumbling. And this is what they're grumbling about. In 391, which I believe is the date of Augustine's ordination, in 391, uh, Theodosius had declared uh, Christianity the religion of the empire. And it, it was not a mere declaration. It was followed by uh, laws which enforced that, made certain kinds of religions illegal, attached uh, uh, qualifications in the matter of religion to Roman posts and offices, so that if you wanted to be a case street type in DC, that is, go to serve in Congress for two years, and then maybe do a year in a think tank, and then become a lobbyist and have real power. Well, that's what was going on in Rome because you had to be a Christian, first of all. And, and, and second, you could rise up the cursus honorum, the new cursus honorum. And uh, Christians and pagans both did it. As Augustine complains in book one, you're not sure who the authentic pagan or Christian really is in, at that time. The, uh, it, it was public benefits. And for a while, people were happy enough to cooperate with it, even some of the older pagan families. But out of the blue, the city is sacked. And they're, they're grumbling this way. Well, what the hell? In 310, we got a Christian emperor. So the Christian uh, imperium is 100 years old already. And uh, now life is miserable. 
By the way, there was a famine two years before the sack, right? I believe there was a drought going on as well. But listen, there's one thing that gods are supposed to do in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world. They're supposed to protect the city. In other words, if crops aren't growing, if virgins are not uh, fructified, right? If your armies don't win, <laughs> the, I mean, the Roman model is you, you go out and get another god, right? Because gods are like slave boys. They're only good for what they deliver. And the Romans had, had no uh, qualms about getting more of them if the earlier ones had uh, uh, run out of utility at this point. So they went around with the Christian one, and now the Christian one is not delivering. That was the grumble. And uh, uh, Augustine understood the pagan version of that because that was uh, the pagan civic religion. But he was furious with the Christians. Absolutely furious. What have they learned about Christianity? Such that they think that Jesus Christ came, suffered, died, and resurrected in order for the corn to grow better. Or even for consecrated virgins to keep their virginity. There's nowhere in the New Testament you find Jesus. He, he recommends being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, but not for the sake of being a uh, unmolested eunuch. I mean, Christians are in the world like everyone else. And the question was whether these people correctly understood what the promise of Christianity is. But he was in a bit of a dilemma. Now, in the sermons, he's talking to Christians, some of whom are grumbling too. But... Uh, the problem is, is he, he had two audiences on his hands. And he had Christian deacons and also pagans asking for his response to the event. And it, it, was, a, it was a daunting uh, task because what you want to write to a pagan is not exactly the same thing you want to write to a Christian about this event. Book one represents his effort to write to both. He's writing back and forth to both. Okay, pause. Book one could have been a standalone. We know this because not until the end of book one does he chart out what's going to be in the rest of the city of God. So by the time he finished writing book one, he knew he was going to have to write a lot more. But probably the majority of book one was written as a polemic against the grumblers, especially the Christians, but also the pagans. So what he does after book one is he divides the uh, city of God into two histories. The first history, which goes from roughly books one to ten, is to tell the true story from the standpoint of the Roman authors themselves. In other words, as a good rhetorician, he lets the other side tell the story. And uh, of course, he, he's a brilliant uh, rhetorician, so he knows how 
to let Livy and all the rest of them tell the story under his guidance. A bit of ventriloquism on the standpoint of Augustine here. But what he wants to emphasize is that on the basis of, how to put it, temporal history, we can see that the God of Christianity is what is not what called caused Rome to fall. That Rome had been falling for centuries, and the chief cause of it was their own gods, which Augustine believed were demons. And he marshals all of this ancient evidence uh, from the Roman writers themselves uh, that Rome fell for lack of virtue, greed, civil wars, and so forth. Now, he does cite scripture along the way, of course, of course, and, and he wraps things up with little Christian lessons. But the first 10 books is to see what happened in the causes, uh, kind of intra-historically, from within the bounds of history as reported by human beings. Then he pauses at book 11. And here, the rest of it is going to be narrated from the standpoint of God. So we'll let Livy and Horace and the rest of them tell us a story. An amazing story, too, because they out all of the lies going on in the myth of Roman exceptionalism. But then we pause and he said, let's let God tell us the true story. Beginning with Genesis 1 and 2. So we get... We get the story from two different points of view, man speaking and God speaking. So book one is, is kicking it off, and it begins with two glories. It begins with his praise of the city of God and Virgil, Virgil's praise for the promise of Jupiter. To the Romans, I have set no bounds in space or time, but have given an empire without end. So there's two empires without end. Uh, there are two glories. That's how he kicks it off. Again, rhetorically, very interesting, because he lets the story go on for several books before you come to the conclusion that Jupiter's promise is, is, is in fact, not a glory, but it's a, uh, it's a defection from the order of creation. So we have uh, the promise of Jupiter and the promise of Christ, two glories. Uh, we have the virtue of Cato on the side of Jupiter and the virtue of Job or the virtues of Job, all of which are, are warming up for Cain and Abel. We're not going to get Cain and Abel until uh, 14 and 15, books 14 and 15, right? who, are, who are the scriptural types of these two glories that we would not know anything about if God had not told us. Because remember, there's lots of things in uh, scripture that we would not know unless God told us, beginning with the first two creation stories. Uh, the creation of the angels is actually done before the existence of time because Augustine's view is that time doesn't exist until the angelic motions 
toward or away from God. So we couldn't possibly know. Uh, second of all, uh, although the defection of Adam and Eve happened within time, it's certainly not historical time. We don't know a thing about Adam and Eve except as is reported in Genesis 3 and following. These are things we need to know about prior to recorded history. So let me, let me go straight for the jugular vein, or at least what Augustine thinks it is, which is uh, chapter nine of book one. Number nine, of the reasons why the correction is inflicted upon the good and the wicked equally. Why did Christians suffer in the time of devastation? And it's interesting, he, he moves on to the issue of, well, they, they were poorly educated. And even if they received some true education, they certainly didn't take it to heart and interiorize it, spiritually and morally. So uh, he goes after uh, those who have misled other people. He says, if anyone refrains from rebuking and correcting evildoers because he is waiting for a more propitious time or for fear of making matters worse by doing so, or because he fears that if he does so, others who are weak may be discouraged from living a good and godly life and driven and turned away from the faith. This restraint is clearly occasioned not by greed, but by counsel of love. It is blameworthy, however, when men who live differently from the wicked and abhor their deeds, nonetheless spare the sins of others when they ought to reform and rebuke them. And he goes on to the subject now of weaker Christians, the grumblers, who turn out to be not just lay people, but also uh, celibate religious. But here's what he says. Many Christians are, of course, weaker men who live a married life and who have or wish to have children and who have houses and families. That's Job. This is why Job is going to uh, come in to be the hero. Job is really, in, in Sermon 5, remember, he represents married people in, in the order of uh, redemption. Noah represents the leaders. Uh, Daniel represents the celibates, right? Or the godly celibates, not all celibates, I suppose. So Augustine says, it is to these that the apostle speaks in churches, teaching them how they should live and admonishing them. Wives and husbands and husbands with wives, children with parents, parents with children, servants with masters, etc. And these, because they take pleasure in acquiring many temporal goods and many earthly things, are afraid to lose these things. So here's the first reason. Uh, of course, it would be good to have God. And of course, it would be, it would be fantastic to be in a good relationship to God. But how much better it would be to have your wife and God, right? And your children and your farms and your properties and your reputation. And therefore, uh, it's only natural, quote unquote, that when temporal goods are taken from us, to grieve and to complain and grumble, it's as though someone goes to heaven and they say, well, where's my olive oil? And uh, 
where's my barn, right? Or the old joke, right? Uh, when you die and go to the pearly gates, there's one door that says uh, lectures on heaven. And that's where the Germans go. And then another door that says concepts of heaven, which is where the French go. And the third door is a, is a Dominican friar simply pointing and it says God. So like, if, if you are not aiming for union with God, you're in trouble. That the grief, the grief is a serious temptation. And th this is to be expected with uh, weak people. This is one of the reasons he brings Job in as the example, because Job just gets totally ruined, right? And at the end, he says, one thing I know is my Lord is my redeemer. So Job would be the model. But it's, it's also a problem with the leadership class of the church, he contends, because they're as subject as any other leaders are, even of temporal polities, uh, to, to protect their reputation against peril and destruction. And they love flattering tongues and praise. This has been known to happen in the precincts of the Vatican over the centuries. And he says, this seems to me, to me, a no small part of the reason why good and wicked men are afflicted alike when it pleases God to punish abandoned morals with the infliction of temporal penalties for both the afflicted together, not because they lead a wicked life together, but because they love this present life. You know, he goes on to argue that what was wrong with the consecrated virgins who grieved is that they love their consecrated virginity more than they love God. And by the way, this is why Dante puts them on the bottom rung of the Paradiso, right? So when you go into the Paradiso with Dante, the lowest rung are, are virgins who spent most of the rest of their life grieving about the loss of their virginity. They're saved, but they're in the lowest rung of heaven. And about, about the clergy, um, they will, they will preach what is comfortable. And if they preach about what's not comfortable, they would do it so comfortably, you wouldn't know the difference. And it's interesting, this is really his first target in, in the city of God, the Christians, and how to interpret their grief, what's causing them sadness, that's moving them to grumble. And it's not as though they don't believe in God. That's not his charge. It's that they don't believe that God is their true end. Their God is still kind of a pagan God who maybe helps Notre Dame win some football games and gives you some prosperity if you're a Buick dealer in Hackensack or something like this. I mean, Augustine's going right after it here. Maybe the Christians aren't as bad as Lucretia, who committed suicide because she was violating. Because uh, at least Lucretia did it for the for a a lack of honor. She grieved her lack of honor. But the Christians are perfectly capable of playing out the same patterns of 
love of this world. So by the way, uh, the two cities, uh, uh, the second city, the second city which was never supposed to exist in God's plan. The second city, the scriptural Chicago was never supposed to exist. And it was created not by human beings, but by the, uh, by the bad angels. And that's why he doesn't call it the city of man. It's called the tearing city or the worldly city in the sense of what the demons and the, the damned have in common is a love of things of this world, even to the contempt of God. And are prepared to transform God into a servant who will uh, protect their tearing comfort and honors and monies and so on and so forth. And so he's at the end of nine, he simply says, then again, there is another reason why the good are afflicted with temporal evils, as in the case of Job, so that the human spirit may be tested in itself and the great strength of its piety known by which it loves God even without reward. So he set it up now for his readers to try to situate themselves uh, somewhere between I would say Cain and Job. And it, to whoever turns their ear in the right direction, it might profit them to consider this. Then in book 10, uh, which is largely on Job, uh, and one thing that always attends the tearing city and the denizens of the tearing city is love of money. Pecunia. Uh, just now, which Roman God was named Pecunia? Jupiter. You're right. It's Jupiter. Because according to the Roman mythology, which is still kind of at work in Mardi Gras every year around the world. The, the earlier regime of human beings were under the reign of Saturn, Saturnalia, and they had no laws and everyone did what they did or what they wanted to do. And it was a time of a kind of very interesting and unregimented chaos. Right. A hippie farm in, 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 in Oregon in 66. Okay. But with the triumph of Jupiter, and they're both con contending for the Capitoline Hill. And when Jupiter prevails, uh, he invents money. Why? Because under, under Saturn, human desires keep on multiplying. It's the multiplication of desires uh, without end and without order. And Jupiter, who brings in uh, government, so to speak, 
invents money. And so Jupiter is called Pecunia. And what does money do, according to the myth of the, the regimes of Saturn and Jupiter? It curbs desire by reducing it to one thing. Because if you have a coin, a thousand different desires can be reduced to the coin. The coin can stand for anything you want it to stand for, but it's a common unit of measurement of desire, right? As Denny DeVito once said very brilliantly, uh, that's why they call it money, because everyone wants it. You see? And so uh, Augustine's also uh, understands that in Christian scripture, mammon is a demon. It's, it, it's personified, demonically. He probably comes out of Qumran teaching, by the way, that, that pecunia or mammon is personified demon. But what that evinces is this about the Terrene city. What we want more than anything else, more than any other desire, or any other multiplicity of desires is to have control. And that's what money does. Money gives one control. Uh, it gives one predictability and it gives one an ability to live in a fallen world uh, somewhat comfortably. Yeah. More comfortably than if you don't have it, by the way. And so money is the telos of uh, the uh, libido dominandi. Not the other way around, it's money. Because money teaches the, the fallen human soul to make everything end in one with predictability and power. And so uh, Cain who is banished to the desert for his sins, for his sin, uh, is said to invent the first city. But it's actually his son who figures out that you can't invent a city without having money. And he, he opens up a hotel. So the claim of the Tarrine city is, damn it, we're going to be comfortable in this world as comfortable as we can get. And uh, that rubs off on everyone, and it rubs off on the Christians who say that I love God, but I don't love God in accord with the great commandment to love God above all else, with a whole heart, mind, and soul. It wants love of God plus pecunia. Take away pecunia, everything's, everything is disordered. A great anxiety is, is reintroduced. Now, I'm, I'm telling you some things that he only gets into several books later with, uh, with regard to the money, but there in book 10, the laying up of treasures, he takes it right to mammon. Okay, another point. It's not as though the Romans were without glory. In fact, the first Romans, having thrown off the yoke of the Etruscan tyrants, uh, and who established a republic, had a good two or 300 year run of, uh, how to put it, civic virtue. 
So one of the heroes he wants to hold up is Cato, but especially Regulus, the Roman general Regulus, right? Who was the most, the most Job-like, but he really wasn't Job-like. He, he was more like a Kantian. Regulus is a Roman general during the Carthaginian Wars. He tries to negotiate a peace or a ceasefire between the Romans and the Carthaginians. He's captured by the Carthaginians says, I will go back to my people and work this out. Uh, and he swears it by the gods. So he goes back to Rome and the Senate will not allow him to do it. He said, but I promised I would go back. I didn't promise Rome that I would go back. I promised the gods that I would go back. And he goes back and he's tortured to death and in a horrible death. And Augustine says, says Man, we don't, we don't have these kind of people around anymore. A really tough, noble Roman virtue. And it's worthy of being called some kind of a light, some kind of glory, because he didn't do it in obedience to the city, but into, in, in obedience to the divinity. Okay. But by the time of 410, of course, that virtue had largely ceased to exist. And so its glory now is control, not honor and self-sacrifice and almost suicidal military exploits, but control. And so in 410, the city of Rome lost control. And Augustine is a precursor of St. Ignatius of Loyola on this, he wants to do a discernment of spirits. What is the cause? By the way, the term libido, this is an interesting word count. I did a word count. Various gerundives, dominandi, nouns, dominatio, verbs, dominari. And so I pieced them together. Book one, 12 times. And then they go down a bit. Book five, 25 times, because it's in book five, he's examining the problem of uh, Roman ruling on the part of its emperors and others. But boy, it comes back in uh, 15, 25 times. Does anyone know what happens in uh, book 15? Cain and Abel. Yeah. So libido dominandi, that is to have control even over the truly good things in this temporal life, to control them, is, is, is the spirit he wants to discern. And it's not just in pagans. Now, we know that Job, according to Sermon 5, is, is, as it were, the patron saint of married people, but also a guy who had barns and money and reputation. And interestingly, the, the patron saint, in a way, of uh, book one is neither a Christian or a Jew. Not a Christian or a Jew. I said that this was the beginning of the Pelagian controversy. And my last reference here will be to book one, 
chapter 35, which is entitled of the sons of the church hidden among the ungodly and of false Christians within the church. And he concludes in this way. But there is no reason to despair wholly of the correction, even of some of these. For among our most declared enemies, unknown even to them, there lie hidden some who are predestined to become our friends. In this world, the two cities are indeed entangled and mingled with one another, and they will remain so until the last judgment shall separate them. Of their rise and progress, he'll have 21 more books. But he has this little zinger here toward the end of book one. He says, on the other hand, while she is a pilgrim in this world, the city of God has with her, bound to her by the communion of the sacraments, some who will not be with her to share eternally in the bliss of the saints. Some of these are concealed. Some of them, however, openly join openly with our enemies and do not hesitate to murmur against the God whose sacrament they bear. Sometimes they crowd into the theaters with our enemies and sometimes into the churches with us. So what he's, what he's saying is that uh, there are some pagans who are raping virgins and defiling the city and both its material and political order who unbeknownst to them or to us will be saints in glory. And there are some of us who have taken the sacrament, those K Street guys, those guys who became Christians to, to get their positions in the Roman cursus honorum, whatever. We'll see them at mass on Sunday, but check them out in the theater in the Colosseum while you're at it. Wrap up book one. That's the best half hour version I can do on that one.